they say, never meet your heroes. And we all know why, don't we? You're going to be disappointed. And, or at least I thought I was safe from this problem because Robert Ingersoll was long gone before I was born, let alone before I became aware of him. But as everyone who listens to this show knows, I have a few other heroes. And one of them is Ursula Goodenough. And the truth of the matter is that I read Ursula Goodenough's classic book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, maybe the first six months after I admitted to myself that I was out of Christianity. And it provided for me the scientific basis for loving life that I was looking for. I knew what values I wanted to live out. They were the same values, but I needed a new foundation for them. And between Ingersoll and Ursula Goodenough, I got it. I mean, there were others, but but those were the linchpins. And I probably recommended that book to so many people. And it was out of print forever. It was so out of print. You couldn't get it. I would buy copies off of, you know, eBay and things like that, and then give them away. But I don't have to do that anymore because I recently found out that a new edition of the Sacred Depths of Nature was coming out. And I thought, wait, I guess I, I kind of assumed that Ursula Goodenough was long gone. But it turns out she is alive. She is alive. And, and, and moreover, this new edition is fabulous. And moreover, when I figured out that this new edition was fabulous, I, I, I reached out and, and I got to meet her. I got to talk to her. You're going to hear the conversation. At the beginning of the conversation, I don't know if she thought I was a weirdo. I, I, at first, I thought like, wow, I'm just, she's just not into me. You know, in that kind of fanboy hero relationship. But then I realized she's just, she's just a soft spoken, wise woman who's cool. And, and by the end of the conversation, I was like, sometimes you should meet your heroes. Many of you know about Ursula good enough because I've recommended this book so often and quoted it and all that, but she is like a legit scientist. She is not just a cool hippie lady. She is a, a legit scientist. She was, is a professor emeritus at Washington University where she taught and did research for many years. You know, she's a true academic. She's not just somebody who's like a teacher. She's also somebody who created new knowledge. And uh, she also created five children. So there's that. And recently, in, in fact, in the conversation, she let me know that she'd been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and to the National Academy of Sciences. I spent enough time with real scientists at USC that I learned that those are like winning an Oscar or winning an Emmy or, you know, getting elected to the hall of fame, whatever, whatever the, the, the thing is, it's a big deal. And so I'm excited to share this conversation with you. This woman has, has, has put forth a seminal idea. And that is that if you tell the narrative of the universe, as we know it, if you tell it well enough, it can inspire you to become the person that you truly want to be. So with that, with no further ado, just my excitement to carry you on. This is me and Ursula Goodenough talking it through on Humanize Me. Ursula, I kind of thought that maybe the thing to do would be to start at the end because the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is because your book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, has recently been re-released in an updated form. And that book was when I came out of evangelical Christianity 10 or 11 years ago and was sort of, I couldn't hold on to that narrative anymore. I couldn't do it, but I was still desperately wanting to hold on to those values. You know, I had been an urban minister. I had been a, a guy who worked with young people. I just, I wanted to continue to try to like actively pursue being a good person. 
And so I was looking for a new foundation for like, why do I want to be good? Why does it make sense to live for love and all this stuff? And a friend of mine recommended your book to me and it became a real cornerstone of what ultimately turned into my version of secular humanism. When the new book came out, and I've recommended it to countless people, I actually recorded myself reading the introduction to it. And sometimes when somebody's discouraged or confused, I send them that and say, listen to this, you're going to love it. So I'm such a fan. And so when the 25th anniversary thing came out, I looked at it. But what was interesting is at the end of the new book, you have a chapter where you sort of describe what it means to be a religious naturalist, which is how you identify yourself. And you say, hey, 25 years ago when I wrote this book, that was just kind of like a very vague general way of thinking. But now it's sort of a thing. I mean, I feel like you're almost one of the founders of that way of thinking. Could you describe it for me? What does it mean to you to be a religious naturalist? Okay. Well, I've certainly participated in identifying it, fleshing it out. I'm, I'll acknowledge that I'm one of the founders, but I'm certainly not the founder. Many others have been writing books and thinking. And <clears throat> my orientation has been particularly influenced by a philosopher named Loyal Rue, who wrote several books along these lines, R-U-E. So you were talking earlier about how you couldn't connect with the narrative of Christian evangelicalism. and But where you pinpointed that was that all religious orientations, to my mind, have a large story, a narrative. That's what all of the traditions going back since the beginning of human culture have had such a story about how things are, which things matter. And so Loyal Rue actually proposed that what he called everybody's story was such a grand sweeping narrative. And so the religious naturalist takes that story to mind, um, understands it, is thrilled by it. What, what do you mean by everybody's story? Okay, by everybody's story, it's Big Bang onwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the epic of evolution, right? Yeah. So uh, the first edition called it Epic of Evolution, but I think everybody's story also contains the key thing that it's not a specific story, but is one that's true for all beings on the planet. That you kind of almost don't have to prove that it's true because it's just there. Yeah. Like this is how things are. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, scientific inquiry has brought us most of these understandings, but, and they will certainly deepen and some may even turn out to have been false leads. But the beauty of it is that it is modifiable. It is capable of deepening and broadening. And that makes it a very exciting story. I always think about Galileo and Newton and the idea that like, that was a big advance. Like the story got way better. And then uh -huh. Newton comes along and goes like, yeah, you missed some really important stuff here. <laughs> and, and if you were a good astronomer, you just changed your mind. Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. being a scientist. Uh, you know, you like something until you learn something better. <laughs> and then you abandon what you liked. So anyway, the question then to get back to your original query, being religious, what does that entail? Um, I've boiled it down to three trajectories. One is that one takes one's story and one responds to it interpretively. What does the story mean? What does it tell me about the origins of life, the meaning of life, death? Is there a God? All of those existential questions, if you will. So that's one trajectory. The second is to take in the story spiritually. So that's awe and reverence. That's uh, wonder, that's gratitude, that's all sorts of emotions, feelings that we call spiritual. Oh, okay. I see. So, so spirituality in, in, is about emotion. It's about, yeah, it's about yeah, okay. how we feel about the story. In the traditions, the spiritual has typically been elicited or promoted or celebrated via song, dance, ritual practice of within the traditions of the church. Wow. Okay. And then yeah. the third is the outward response to the story, the communal, the how should I be? How should I behave? 
towards others and towards other beings and towards the planet. So a religious naturalist explores those three trajectories, the interpretive, the spiritual, and the moral, in the context of everybody's story, and comes up with an orientation that works for them and hopefully will work better the next day when they think of something else. But it's an ongoing orientation. It's so interesting to me because when I read the original version of your book, I was so struck by the notion that every religion has a cosmos and an ethos, that every religion has a story of like how things are and which things matter. And what's interesting as I listen to you today is the how things are stays the same, you know, but you've taken the what things matter and you've sort of broken it into two parts. There's the feeling and then there's the action. That right. I would say it's more the internal and the external. So yes, okay. Our internal responses to the story, our emotions and feelings about it are very important in all traditions in giving the practitioner the will, the motive, the incentive to pay attention to the things that matter. The, the reason why I'm so struck by the change, Ursula, is in the last 10 years, one of the things that's happened to me is I, I ended up becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and I practice kind of cognitive behavioral therapy um, mm -hmm. with clients. And one of the things they teach about cognitive behavioral therapy is something called thought stopping. And the idea is, is that the way human beings work is we have a thought whether it's true or not, we have a thought and it causes a feeling and that feeling tends to motivate behavior. And that a lot of times our feelings and our behavior are really maladaptive and we have to find a way to interrupt a bad thought, like a thought that says you're worthless. I have a way of talking back to the voice in our mind that tells us that we're worthless and saying, wait, wait a second. Actually, let me point out some facts to you. And, and, and we interrupt the thought. And in a sense, on a very grand worldview level, you're sort of saying like, hey, your worldview matters. And, and, and the story that you tell, the narrative you tell matters but because it will inspire feelings and, and it will inspire an internal response. And that internal response is going to create an external response. And that's not just going to affect you. It's going to affect the world around you. And so there is a sort of religion is about responding to your narrative, both emotionally, internally, and externally in the way you behave. I love that because that, that sort of makes me religious. Oh, you are. <laughs> I can already tell. <laughs> the spiritual piece of it is basically what both the first and second editions of the book, the reflections, I consider those to be spiritual reflections. Yeah. Each one of them covers a particular spiritual parameter, such as assent or awe or gratitude. And if you'll forgive me, to just to interrupt for a second, for those that haven't yet read the book, what it is is each chapter in the book tells part of the story of how life emerged. And, and then at the end of it, there's almost like what evangelical Christians would recognize as like, you know, our daily bread or, you know, the little devotional thought at the end of it. And th those are the reflections you're talking about. And there's a sense in which the reflections are about like, look, I've just told you something really interesting about the universe. This is how I respond to it. This is what, how it makes me feel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is how it makes me feel. It makes me want to do what it makes me want to yeah. do. Yeah. I love that. So I don't think it's an accident that there's a devotional thought at the end of each chapter. And I was raised by a Baptist minister. And my sense is that you were raised by some religious folks too. Like, tell me a little bit about your dad. Well, yes and no. My dad grew up in a very strict Methodist household. It would be called evangelical today, I'm sure. Went to seminary and thought he was going to be a preacher. And then he lost his faith along the way. And so okay. he got a PhD and became a professor of the history of religion at Yale. And so his interest in religion continued 
actively throughout his life, but he was no longer a believer. And I went to the local congregational Sunday school when I was growing up, but you know, it was because my friends were there or something. I mean, it didn't take, it didn't take and don't have those parts in my brain. And I it certainly wasn't, um, presented to me as I was growing up the way it sounds like it was to you. No, no, I, I bought in and was yeah. you know, in that world for a long time. But what's interesting is, is because I was in it for so long, I, maybe you share the same interest. Maybe your dad did too is I'm obsessed with the idea of like, how did I buy into that? Like, why was I religious? Why are people religious? Like the narratives don't seem to make a lot of sense. They seem on the face of them to look pretty mythological. So I'm always interested in like, how did I get sucked in? What kept me there? What makes people religious? And you realize that in the same way that you were just talking about, like, I think one of the things Answer Eyes come up with is people want to have a a narrative that inspires certain feelings and they want to behave in certain ways and they want their kids to behave in certain ways. And these religious narratives are very good at inspiring those feelings and inspiring that certain behaviors. Absolutely. Well, of course, all the narratives that humans wrote have a lot of that stuff sort of baked in, right? Yeah. So you tell a story of a hero and the hero is whether they be a hero in war or a hero in compassion, these are then persons who are lifted up to the next generation as yeah. being exemplary. Nature doesn't come with <laughs> that many perks. As we said earlier, nature just <laughs> is and doesn't give us values per se. So the religious naturalist, I would say, comes to value the whole shebang, the whole fact that there is anything at all rather than nothing. That is what becomes sacred. You don't think that certain moral values are baked into the cosmos? Well, we have to be careful here, right? So I would say yes and no. I would say that in our particular lineage, which is a social lineage, comes from the primates, all of whom are very social, having a functional social context is definitely baked in. We're also mammals, so nurturing the young actively is also baked in. Although, in fact, as I say in the book, nurture really goes all the way down to all sexual beings that are put seed coats on their embryos and so on. So there are things that we would put in the moral category, making a list that nature gives us examples of. But of course, as everybody points out, nature is full of critters killing other critters, often in gory ways and so on. So, I mean, there's lots of things about nature that we wouldn't put in on our list of what we value. It's so interesting, though, because one of the things I learned from your book was that the one thing that we have in common with every living thing, whether it's a mammal or a lizard or a plant or a protozoa, is this desire to push living forward. Oh, yeah. The continuation of life is basic. Yeah, no, absolutely. So all And and, and that feels like a moral value to me, to do what it takes well, to live. Some yeah, some people would disagree with you and say that that connotes selfishness is bad. I mean, all I'm saying is that for sure everybody's story since it for me is the only story, you know, on offer that I seek all the moral facets of it that I can, but the story wasn't written to educate me purpose, yeah. <laughs> on my moral values. The way the gospels are written with explicit and yeah. implicit project to have people behave like Jesus. And there isn't any of anything like that in the natural world. So we have to come up with our own values. And so that's some of what I do in the last chapter of the new edition is try to seek and find moral values within what we're given. I think that's why I call myself a humanist um, rather than a religious naturalist, because I think I've sort of adopted the idea of, I know that there are other strategies to promote life. I know that other species have other ways of doing it. I'm openly saying, I know I'm only partial 
to love and cooperation because I'm human. I recognize that it's just one strategy among many, but I am loyal to it. And you go like, but you only prefer it because you're hardwired to prefer it. And I go, I, I know. And I like that. <laughs> and so I think like, I find myself thinking, it's funny, I, I was interviewing a guy, a philosopher recently who wrote a book about called decency. And he said, most people don't want to be moral paragons and altruistic and give everything for the greater good. They just want to be like decent people. And I think for me, I know I should care about all life. And I go like, yeah, I'm really, you know, I got to be honest with you in my hierarchy of care, I'm for the humans. If it comes down to us versus the uh, squirrels, I'm, I'm going for the humans. I'm going for the humans and the squirrels, uh, figuring out how to hang out together. <laughs> how are you feeling these days about that project? About which project? The project of trying to keep the world in such a way that the humans and the squirrels and everybody's going to hang out together. I mean, are you... That is the goal, I, I hope. I mean, I hope that no humanist that I know of their agenda to wipe out every other species except the human. Not only would that be a moral disaster, but of course, all of us are totally in interdependent. I mean, That's if right. the bacteria were to disappear tomorrow, all the rest of life would last maybe a year. It's not like we might say that we're more interested in humans because we have do certain things that are interesting, like make cultures and stuff, but we're all in this together. It's all one planetary matrix and it, it all has to be uh, revered and, sac and sacralized to my mind. This whole thing about what you call yourself, uh, which of course has been <laughs> the Smart scourge of, of uh, particularly the Protestant tradition for centuries. <laughs> Am I a Methodist or a Calvinist or a Baptist? Right, or right. A, and you know, it has to do with whether the bells ring when you're taking communion or not. But the term humanist for me uh, is off-putting because it does connote, even though you guys don't insist that that's not what you mean, but it does connote humans are at the center. I very much think that that's gotten us into a lot of trouble and that we yeah. do better to remind ourselves on a regular basis that we're not only interrelated with everything else, but we're also interdependent with everything else. That's a real tension there from, yeah. Because, you know, the young people talk about centering yourself in the narrative, the, you know, yeah. who gets centered. And, and we do, when we say humanist, we tend to center ourselves, don't we? It'll be interesting to see what everybody's calling themselves in 50 years. I mean, I know a lot of humanists who are telling me, well, I'm now calling myself a religious humanist. Well, now I'm calling myself a humanistic naturalist. Well, now, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... <laughs> Anyway, for whatever it's worth, I said a lot of religious naturalists, it works for me, and it seems to be working for a lot of people. I mean, there are people who hate the R word, and for them it's anathema, but there are people that hate the spiritual word, uh, there are yeah. people who hate all words. So one of the things that I'll mention at this juncture is that a bunch of us about 10 years ago came up with something that we call the religious naturalist or association. Has that mm -hmm. come on your screen yet? And it's just an online thing where people who believe that they're religious naturalists or at least are heading in that direction, they join this group and there are about a thousand of us now. And we have a, you know, a very informative website, so on. So there is a structure. I will put that link on the show notes and you know, my crowd, yeah. there's some nascent religious naturalists in there. Great. Great. Well, tell them to check us out. I want to take you to the religious part of it. And also the, if we were talking about the book, the sacred part of it. And okay. I, I guess I just want to ask you a question. Like what I got out of reading all those reflections was the sense of you as a scientist. I mean, you're a straight up biologist. In fact, I, I will boast. I was elected to the national Academy last week. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. So my science has been validated, and it's also been validated that somebody can be elected to the National Academy of Sciences and still write a book about religions. <laughs> you know, uh, can I just say, to quote your father, Ursula's a scientist. How marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, sorry. Okay. Uh, I can't remember where no, we no. Oh, So what I was going to say is, is that, you know, my impression is it's like that you're this scientist that when you look through a microscope or when you 
understand the process by which a creature evolves, that at some point you sit back from the microscope and you are overwhelmed, that you are moved emotionally. And I guess I just wanted you to talk a little bit about like, can you give me an example of a moment in your life where where you had sort of a religious experience with science, where something touched you in that way that a Christian would say, you know, I was at this moment in church and they sang the song and I felt God. Like, when have you felt your awe and wonder of the universe? I think it's a pretty 24-7 situation. (laughs) 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 I mean, yeah, I'm looking out my window now at these birds migrating through and, you know, I'm just gobsmacked by their behavior, their beauty, and, and I'm, I'm not even asking any scientific questions of them. I'm in the lab and doing research. You know, there are a lot of things going through your mind. Of, have I set up the control right? Have I, is the microscope in focus? Are the cells happy or do I need to give them more light or less light? So it's much more of a practice than it is having, being overwhelmed by spiritual experiences. But the whole privilege of being able to ask questions where I don't yet know the answer and then getting an idea and exploring it and seeing whether it's true. And if it is writing it up, I mean, all of that is just a total gas. I I mean, I'm thinking of one of the early chapters in the book, which was about kind of the origins of our planet, the astrophysics, if you will, of it all. Yeah. And I don't do any of that. I know you don't, but you, but you wrote a chapter that sort of summarized (laughs) what you, what you, what you'd learned. And so I would say that you understand where the earth comes from better than your average lay person. And then when we get deeper into the process of like how sexual reproduction and asexual reproduction differ, you know a lot more than the average person about how that works. What I'm wondering is lots of people look at the stars and are awestruck and and have kind of an experience with them. Or lots of people look at the birth of a of a baby bird or a birth of a deer and are filled with delight and wonder at the beauty of nature. But for you, understanding it on a deeper level, does that in any way change or deepen your experience of watching these things happen? Or are you just, is it the same as it ever was? Oh, it's it's definitely, you know, adds. I think somewhere in the second edition, I have a thing about looking at a sunset admiring all of its color and its beauty, and then thinking about the nuclear fusions that are going on, and then thinking about the light that's driving photosynthesis that allows the oxygen to be in the air that I'm breathing. Uh, I mean, so there are all sorts of ways that one can go up and down and in and out once one has a lot of this knowledge. There's lots more to think and feel. And so on some level, science enriches your experience of the everyday yeah the everyday of nature and and this is particularly true for true for critters you know some people say well you know i don't need to know how a tree works i'll just walk through the woods and admire the tree and get off on that and i say well you know fine go for it but let me tell you if you stop for a minute and you think about the xylem and the phloem and the cells and the what happens during photosynthesis and stuff that tree becomes not only more interesting, but more remarkable. It's just a richer experience of the tree that complements just the beauty of walking in their presence. I'm thinking of, I heard this podcast a few years ago about the forest floor and the way that trees beneath the surface are communicating with each other. And in some ways you can see a forest as a single entity. and it definitely walking through the forest the next time was a very different experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel you there. One of the things I think that I inevitably end up in dialogue with lots of believers because they're horrified that I left the faith and they come after me to talk with me about it. And whenever we're talking about science, they always say, you say that you understand evolution, but like you can't explain how the first living thing emerged. First of all, you don't know what happened five seconds before the Big Bang, and you don't know what was happening five seconds before the first living thing emerged. Are they right? 
Well, I mean, oh, sure, they're right. I mean, you know, if they want to insert God in those two places, go for it. But we know an awful lot about nature and what happened and everything. And so it's a little bit cherry picking to lift up the two things that still haven't been figured out and probably will never be able to be figured out and say, therefore, you need a God. You can also just say, well, don't know the answer. It's a mystery. But look what happened after that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you sort of suspect we'll never really know how that first cell happened? Probably not because, you know, it was, what, three and a half billion years ago or so. It long ago got eaten, died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, and, and we can extrapolate back. We certainly know a lot about what I call in the book our last universal common ancestor, the Luca, because that critter must have had DNA and RNA and proteins and lipid membranes and all the things because all of modern life has that list. And so if everybody has the same list, you extrapolate back down until you get to the first one that had that list. And that's the last universal common ancestor. That does not mean that that's the first living entity because those are all features that evolved over probably 500 million years so there's a lot that happened and what the very beginning point, what that particular critter looked like. I've got a model in the book. I call it an autogen just to give people sort of an idea of what it might have entailed, but it's totally agnostic as to what it's made of. It's just little squares and triangles. That's fine with me. That's the way it's important to think about it because when you're not worried about whether there's DNA there or not, then you start to think about what is involved in being a self, what is a living critter and how is it different from something that is not living. And yeah. that's, to me, the rich part of contemplating the origin of life is helping us to define what we mean by life. It's funny because you used a word in the book a few places, emergence. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that, do you feel like life is an emergent quality of our planet or this universe? Of sure. <laughs> yeah. All the stuff was there, mm -hmm. but then at some point. Well, the stuff has to get put together in relationship. Those relationships, if they generate something that keeps going, then you have sort of the engine, the motor of something that's alive. And the properties that emerge then, things like catalysis and metabolism and protection and reproduction, those are all emergent from the relationships between the component parts, the nothing buts. I mean, I know we don't know why there is something instead of nothing. And I know we don't know why the laws of physics are what they are and not different. But given that there is something and given that they're, the laws of physics in our universe are what they are, would it be fair to say as a biologist that like given what's out there, that life was inevitable. Like in this universe, if you have all those pieces out there and you give it enough time, was life inevitable? Well, I mean, you can ask the same thing about gazillions of new planets that they're finding out in the universe. Did something that could be called life by the criteria that I lift up uh, also have come together somewhere else? And right. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be stupid to say no, because it happened here, so why not happen somewhere else? It happened here, but what it is that happened here has the components of our planetary matrix. So it's our planet is particularly rich in iron and particularly rich in water, and so iron plays a major role in the living beings and so on. So you kind of make do with what you got on your particular planet. Yeah. And you sort of wake, if you're us, you wake up looking around at the universe and go like, look, somebody prepared a planet that's perfect for us. <laughs> and you go like, well, kind of the other way around, but you know, we're okay with that. So on some level, I guess, because what I'm thinking of is, and again, I had this interesting conversation with this uh, philosopher who basically one of the core beliefs of his philosophy is something I really share it that I got from you. He was sort of like, death is necessary. Like if there's going to be consciousness, if we're going to have life, if we're going to have all the richness of conscious life, 
There is no consciousness possible without death. Okay, well, we've got to make sure we're using our vocabularies the same way. I'm guaranteeing you, yours is probably the right one and mine's wrong. No, no, no. Well, I, I had to invent one because otherwise I would be flip-flopping about consciousness throughout the book and driving everybody crazy as consciousness books tend to do for me. Always do. So yeah. uh, what I wound up doing was saying that all living beings on the planet, certainly today, and probably very early after life originated, have an emergent property that we call awareness, that they are aware of their surroundings, where the food is, where it's too hot, too cold, where the predators are. So awareness, and it's certainly in modern organisms, bacteria are aware of all sorts of things, for example. So awareness goes all the way down. And then I made the move of calling the particular kind of awareness that animals have evolved to uh, have, I call that consciousness. And I said that this particular form of awareness uh, is mediated by brains and animals are defined as organisms that have brains. So for me, therefore, a tree is aware, but a tree of all sorts of things, but a tree isn't conscious because it doesn't have a brain. And you might say that's arbitrary, but it sure helped me out in writing the book because <laughs> I could then focus in on what do we mean by consciousness and how does it work to our understandings and so on. So consciousness involves brains. If consciousness right. involves brains, so consciousness brains is the have kind to die. Of awareness that brains do. And brains, uh, you can only find them by definition in multicellular animals. Being multicellular involves being sexual. And so the sexual lineages all came up with the same idea, including you know trees and, and non-animals, non of having a somatic line, a body, and a germ line, which generates the gametes for the next generation. And the DNA stuff, you mean? Well, the, the gametes are the sperm and the eggs. Okay, okay. okay. So they are- They carry produced. that. They carry the DNA. They carry the DNA, right, exactly. Okay. They are cells, and uh, just like all the other cells in the body, but they have particular tasks, as do all the cells in the body. So the task of the brain cells is to generate consciousness. So consciousness then is an animal thing, but there are various kinds of consciousness depending on how the brains have evolved in a particular lineage. So birds of prey are particularly conscious of fish swimming in the water, and humans are conscious of m many too many things, I would say. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> And self-conscious. Well, and then there's that, that piece too. But anyway, all of that is programmed to die. The embryo makes the fully formed soma. The soma supports the germline, nurtures the offspring, and then there's nothing else for it to do, and so it dies. But if you didn't have death and a soma that works that way, then you would never have brains. So that's kind of my argument that I think you're lifting up. Yeah, no, I, I, it's funny. I, the line that struck me so much was at the end of that chapter, right before you start to reflect on it, you say, so our brains and hence our minds are destined to die with the rest of the soma. And it is here that we arrive at one of the central ironies of human existence, which is that our sentient brains are capable of experiencing deep regret and sorrow, fear, at the prospect of our own deaths. Yet it was the invention of death, the invention of the germ-soma dichotomy that makes possible the existence of our brains. I, I think that as much as I'm trying, it's easier to get somebody excited about life than it is to get them excited about death. But I want people to be excited about death because it's part of the bargain. And it's a really good bargain. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I'd much rather, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the alternative is to not to not have any conscious experience at all, which uh, I thoroughly enjoy. Yeah, I don't know who that poet is who said it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. It sounds like Whitman. That's how I feel about that the soma, that idea that hey, it's this dichotomy that makes possible the kind of complicated life forms. That can think about it. So you are one of the things that you talk about is eco-morality. And the idea that if 
a careful reflection on the realities of the universe, of the story of, of everyone, everyone's story. You feel like if people carefully reflected on that and communicated it back and forth to each other in comprehensible ways, that people would be inspired to take better care of the planet. That's my hope. Have, have you seen that? Have you seen that happen anywhere? Of course, I hang out with the people who read my book and people who are in the <laughs> religious national It's a self-selecting group, yeah. And, and, <laughs> you know, this is probably not going to go over really well with the two gentlemen that you were just talking to, for example. So it's not in any way like I delude myself into thinking that this is just going to sweep the planet in the next two years. But you got to try. <laughs> Put it out there and put it, you know, run up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes. It's so interesting. You know, it's funny, you're a biologist and the stuff you studied is kind of, it's not current events. Do you in any way stake, do you follow current events? Do you? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And sometimes I think that I think of you as a wise, I mean, I think of you as a wise person. You know, and, and the book that you wrote is kind of a timeless book to me. I sort of was hoping you would say, no, I've given up on that. And the reason <laughs> is because lately the thing that's been most striking me is this notion of artificial intelligence that I keep hearing reading about the emergence of artificial intelligence. And it's made me very sad because it feels like the emergence of a technology that that'll move faster than we can than our moral instincts can keep up with it. I would say that we have plenty to worry about and wrap our minds around with climate change, climate change, species preservation, all sorts of immediate things that really have to be figured out in the next few decades. So I'm not spending a whole lot of my time wringing my hands about how the world is going to come to an end with AI. It is the case that at the end of the day, the robots are using material that comes from human brains. <laughs> uh, they're they're rearranging it and they are, you know, uh, synthesizing it. They're doing all sorts of things that blow my mind with it, but they're not coming up with it. They're starting with no. stuff that already is out there. My worry comes much more on the social media, Facebook, like the algorithms and all that stuff. Because, I mean, it's funny, like in your book. I mean, we've the, already the, got that. We're savvy yeah. about it. I mean, you know, it's it's annoying if you buy something on Amazon and the next hour there's an ad for it on your Facebook. But I mean, you know, that, that, that's not what I mean though. What I mean is like, you know, you quoted a Senegalese conservationist, yeah. uh, Baba Diom. Is that how you mm -hmm. say it? Yeah. And Baba Diom's like, you know, big eco morality thing was in the end, we will conserve only what we love and we will love only what we understand and we will understand only what we are taught. And I guess what I'm worried about right now is I feel like the algorithms make sure that one set of people are taught one thing and another set of people are taught another thing. The idea that there's this universal truth that we will teach everyone, it feels like we're getting to the place where people are not only getting their own interpretations of the facts, like there are different sets of facts out there for different sets of people. And that's troubling to me, especially in light of but come on, I mean, that's always been true. I mean, the, the Hindu kid is raised in the whole panoply of gods and the Christian kid is raised on Jesus. I thought science was going to transcend that. I thought science was going to be the one thing that nobody could in interpret away. Well, they, or, or, you can't. I mean, in the end, the, an interpretation of nature has nothing to do with what nature is doing. I mean, nature's doing its own thing, regardless of what AI algorithm is um, telling you about it. Telling you about it. It may be correct or not correct. I mean, we know what an understanding of the best test we've come up with so far for knowing whether an understanding of science, a scientific understanding of nature is correct, is that we use that understanding. We say, hmm, I could make something with this. And that's what's called technology. And all of our technology is, of course, based on scientific understandings of nature that we take and then make something. Um, and we say it's not natural anymore. It's human made. But the if the understanding of nature is wrong, the technology won't work. <laughs> so when the technology does work, 
that's a pretty good sign that that the understanding that the technology is based on that we've got it right. Okay, I I want I want to say I'm comforted, but I'm I guess what I'm worried about is I know that nature does what nature does whether whether we understand it or not, but I'm also painfully aware that while we may or may not understand nature, we can destroy it or we can at least destroy our corner of it. <laughs> you know, fairly nature nature, w- nature doesn't give a a blue blue about, about us. us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do. But I do. Okay. Remember, I'm a humanist. I, I do I care about us. And so oh, I, if, I care about I mean I hope that came through in the book. I lift up the human all over the place. Oh you do. About, you do. Talk about how great like we it, are. It, uh, if, if 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 our lives depend upon nature's life, and nature's life depends upon whether or not we understand it well enough to protect it, oh, to love it, you know, if the nature we depend on depends on us loving it, then it's very important to me that we love nature. That's why you're a hero of mine because you're somebody <laughs> who has turned me and has turned a number of my friends onto, hey. If you want something to inspire you to be a good man or to be a good woman, look at what's around you. Look carefully, look deeply, and you will find inspiration to live a good life. And so I get concerned when I fear that there are technologies emerging that keep people from learning the truth about nature or that distract them from learning the truth about nature. Let me repeat, we're already there, you know, without AI, and we've been there for a long time. Oh, I know. There have been stories. I've been worried for a long time. I've been very worried. (laughs) I'm very worried. (laughs) Okay, but, but, you know, I think that the, um, I'm a glass half full kind of person, so my sense is that that, uh, what we do know about nature via scientific inquiry is amazing, has led to technologies that, you know, include AI and all sorts of other things. But in the end, we are positioned to actually get it right. We, we really actually could pull it together if we act <laughs> mindfully and leave behind our fear and our greed. In other words, if we did a thing that human beings have never done. We've never been in this situation before. That's true. Hey, I've got a question for you. Maybe this is a good one to end on because I, I want to respect your time. Um, My cat is playing with the microphone. <laughs> once again, once again, your love of nature is a real problem when we're trying to talk about your love of nature. When I was a little boy growing up in church, we used to sing this song. Um, and it said, we are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And then it said, and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. I'm just thinking about religious naturalism and I'm thinking about your journey. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is that if somebody does pick up the sacred depths of nature and they read it and they're touched and moved and inspired as I have been, and they sort of adopt a religious naturalist attitude, what do you think would be the the behavior? How would you know somebody was a religious naturalist? You would go like, because they recycle or because they talk about it. Or What is the action part of this for you? If somebody gets the message, what do you hope that they will then do? How shall we live? Well, what I hope they will then do is adopt a very eco-moral lifestyle and teach that to others, become an evangelist of that perspective. and that perspective includes love in spades, not only love of other humans, but love of this incredible planet that we happen to show up on. There are other ways to get there. As you know, many of the churches are have, you know, green committees and they go out and sure. do things. And, and I've joined some of them and the deep sort of the slogan for all of these things is that we have to protect the earth because it's God's creation. And that's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, wh- <laughs> whatever right it takes. Thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so to get to a place where we're all doing the right thing and trying to make progress in taking care of the place, it's I am speaking to people for whom understanding nature is something that they enjoy and for and many of whom 
have lost the face of, of their origin and are looking for something else. I'm sure you picked up. There's nothing Richard Dawkins in me about it. I'm not about this. I'm not saying religions are stupid and people who believe in them are jerks um, and that those who don't are brights or whatever baloney he came up with. Yeah, uh, <laughs> talk, about, talk about bad marketing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a real, real mess. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I it and at this in the same way, a lot of my religious naturalist friends still love the Episcopal Mass. It's beautiful and meaningful to them. They may not believe everything that they're reading or hearing, but they can center themselves in lots of different traditions, including ones that they grew up in. You know, it's funny. I I know some progressive Christians, and they you know they celebrate the myth of Christianity. And they're like, it's a very helpful myth, and it inspires us. Of course, myth is is abused, I would say, in that we talk about something being a myth as being untrue. So I try to use the word mythos, which is kind of more grander thing, the mythos of Christianity, because it, you know, it kind of implies the large story again that Christianity entails. And I guess on some level, our present understanding of science could be thought of as a myth. In the sense oh, yeah. of, I call everybody's story a mythos. It's a narrative. It has a beginning. It has characters. It has time. It has morals. It has everything in it, including us weird humans. And to understand it, you kind of almost have to do some anthropomorphizing that isn't maybe technically true, but it helps you to get it. Oh well, anthrop. We can't talk without anthrop. It's hopeless. I mean, scientists anthropomorphize all day long, just the way we think. When somebody starts believing that a crystal, you know, really is a goddess, then, you know, we, we can have a conversation. But to say that the crystal has goddess-like symmetry or beauty or something like that, go for it. Right. But also, like, when somebody says that a bacteria wants Oh, yeah. <laughs> it moves there because it, it wants this food or it, you know, it rejecting this thing or whatever. We humans have la la symbolic language and verbs. And so we have a verb called want, but a bacterium under a microscope and it's swimming up a food gradient. It wants to get to the food. It doesn't have the language that says that, but that's its aim. That's its purpose. All sorts of uh, language like that, that we seem to think is can only apply to humans or maybe mammals. It goes all the way down. So in the end, you know, I, I always think about the theologian Paul Tillich who used to talk about, you know, a person's ultimate concern. That was his name for God was what's your ultimate concern. And it feels like, you know, for religious naturalism, the ultimate concern is this eco morality that, that like what the most important thing is in a sense, preserving the natural potential of the earth and the life that is on the earth, that that's kind of the ultimate concern. Yeah. Including humans, including our cultures, including our history. So it's not just about worms and, and flowers. We're part of it too. And that's finding true. our place within it, understanding what we owe to the rest of it is something that we're slowly but surely figuring out. It's funny. I, I was I was on a hike with a young person, uh -huh. and uh, we were talking about nature and all this stuff. And I was decrying. I was in Los Angeles. I was decrying the overdevelopment of Los Angeles and that it's a desert and they bring in all this water. And as we were walking in this beautiful park, but like on the edge of the ocean in Malibu, mm -hmm. he pointed up to some mansions and he said, "You probably think those are." those are destruction of nature, that, that those are blights on the natural landscape. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, man, he said, you look at a beehive and you say, well, that's, that's a natural phenomenon. That's bees making a habitat for themselves. And you look at an otter's dam and you go like, yeah, that's, that's part of nature. He said, see that mansion up there? He said, that's a human nest. It's as much a part of nature as anything else. And there's a certain truth in that, that we in our cultures we are part of nature as well. We got to prevent ourselves from be, being a cancer, but. Right. So that's the point is that you don't have to have a, you know, a 5,000 square foot nest. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the excesses of what a lot of what humans do are tampered once one takes an eco-moral presence. I mean, I, w- I would no longer build a house like that than fly. There are forces within the natural, natural world, like cancer or a forest fire um, or a cat killing a mouse that we would go like, hey, from the mouse's perspective, that's uh, not a really great feature of nature. Or from the forest perspective, that's not a really great feature of nature, but there it is. Right. And I guess on some level, people that build 5,000 square foot houses, they're a feature of nature too. They might destroy stuff we care about, but it, it is all part of the unfolding of, of what's happening here. They are, but I think you're setting up a straw man hero in a, in a way, because if our goal is to keep the place from crashing, then we have to make up some rules. One of the rules is that we passed such a rule in my town just two years ago that the biggest house you can build is 2,000 square feet. Sorry. Um, so, Where do you live that is has that kind of anti-American, progressive, healthy way of thinking? Where do you uh, live? I live on Martha's Vineyard, so it's <laughs> not a very good test. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but we're still people. <laughs> and, and, you know, well, the people, a lot of people lost the potential money by that law because they yeah. can no longer sell the old farm uh, for as much money because the rich guy from Los Angeles can't come and build his, his mansion on it. When it comes to the self-discipline that we will need if we are to accomplish the goal at hand that you're talking about, I mean, that's a start, right? It's a little bit yeah. of self-discipline. It's a little bit of curbing your appetite. It's just a well, little self-discipline, bit. Self-discipline, I mean, go back to your Christianity. I mean, self-discipline was taught all over the place. Thou shalt not, let's, you know, uh, that's Old Testament, but, uh, yeah, you know, little Catholic kids, they're little evangelical kids. You had to discipline yourself. You had to not take the shirt off the little girl sitting in the next desk, even though you might want to. Discipline is part of being a social critter. They did not sing that. They did not say they will know we are Christians by our self-discipline. But <laughs> in some sense, it was implicit because love right. always requires self-discipline. Of course. And yeah. and so, yeah, on some level, they will know we are religious naturalists <laughs> by our collective self-discipline. I think we need to rewrite that hymn. <laughs> <laughs> Ursula, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been great. I, I love I, you. <laughs> I'll let you know when this is happening, uh, okay. when, when we when we actually put this up. If there's stuff you want us, like the religious naturalist. No, the only other thing that I'd ask you to do is to, there is a website, um, I'll just say it, it's www.sacreddepthsofnature.com. Yes, I've seen it. I, I think you have that one. I've tried to put up there everything that I want people to know about the book and about me. And then the, the Religious National Association, which the acronym is RNA, which is rather poignant. Yeah, um, cute. <laughs> I, I guess you found it. So, I, I, yeah, I'll put I'll put all that stuff up. It's religious and, uh, hyphen naturalist hyphen organization dot org. <laughs> got it. Okay, got it. I'll do that, and and I'll let you know when it's going out in case there's anybody that you want to share it with. But don't feel oh, any yeah. pressure. No, I've I've, uh, I've been sharing all my podcasts. I've been I've done done quite a few, but they and they're fun. I bet you have. I bet you have. <laughs> I want to believe that this one was special, but I know one, that I, there are it, lots. It, it, you know, they all go. They go in such different directions. I never. Yeah. And it's I'm great sure. for me because I don't have to prepare anything. I just show up. <laughs> you just show up. Yeah. No, and but you probably haven't talked to many people who are. Uh, as big a fanboys of you as I am. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a contest at some point. <laughs> I got to tell you, that's the thing. Like the two things, I mean, because I've been at this for not just the podcasting, but I was the humanist chaplain at USC for a number of years. Like, I, you know, I've been at this for a while. I'm trying to inspire people to embrace love as a way of life in a purely secular way for a long time. And, and probably the, your book, and Robert G. Ingersoll, if you know who that is. I will send you a Robert G. Ingersoll quote. He was known as the great agnostic in the 1890s. Okay. And he is, 
He is a yeah, just, he, he just was shoot a, me an email with his name and and, and the quote and I'll, I'll he was one of the original he was one of the original religious naturalists I will okay. tell you that he loved well, nature I, I, and he fought for it one one of the things we have up on our RNA site is something that you might want to check out uh, just for your own delight it's called religious naturalist voices I guess and it's it's on okay. the um, uh, I'll, I'll shoot you the link because it's a little bit hard okay. to find but I actually did it myself, and I found quotes from about, oh, I think it's up to 40 people that I think of as religious naturalists, even though they may not have used the term, and, you know, including people like Pope Francis, who I think is a very good religious naturalist, uh, <laughs> even though he uses all that God language. Um, so I'll, I'll shoot you that. You, you'll enjoy it, I think. It's been a delight. I, I'm just very grateful, and I hope you enjoy your day there on Martha's Vineyard. I'm planning to. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, so that was it. There's nothing more to say, right? I got it out there. If nothing else, she knows I love her. She knows I'm grateful, and, and there's some value in that. And hopefully you are a little bit inspired to go find that book for yourself or to find something like it, something that makes you want to be your best self. That isn't fear, that isn't shame, that isn't guilt, that's just pure love of life and a desire to respond to life in the most appropriate way for a human to do, which is to enjoy it, to appreciate it, and to love it. Now, I don't know what the most appropriate way for a human to love a podcast is, to respond to a podcast, but, but I know some people that do, and I'm here to thank them. I'm here to thank people that support this show on Patreon and make it possible for us to track down wonderful people and talk to them. And so I'm, I'm you know, here it is. You ready? I want to thank Giovanni Seeger. I want to thank Robin Kimbrell. I want to thank Mark Tit, Mark Gaylor, and Daniel Travis, and Paul DeMarco, and Michael Venditti, and Mock Zenick. And Taco 54. And I know what you're saying. Like, what are those? Those are the names that people want gave us when they gave us money. Those are the things they said. That's what I want to be called when you shout me out. So there you have it. And then there's Terry Foldenauer and Jeff Martin. And Jeff Martin, I, you know, I, I have a feeling he's sitting at home going like, if I'd have known I could have gone with something like Taco 54, you know. I'd up my game. I do want to tell you, though, that Jeff Martin spells his first name G-E-O-F-F. -F. And I also want to tell you that I have known four G-E-O-F-Fs in my time, personally. And I'm going to count Jeff as the fifth. And I have never met one that wasn't a wonderful person. I'm just saying there are some names that seem to attract or seem to be, seem to be slapped on good genes. and. Jeff is one of them. I'll probably get emails. I'll probably get notes from people saying, listen, I know a real jerk of, an, of a Jeff, but I don't. And so Jeff, I'm glad to have you on the team. And by the way, you, you may say, gosh, it, was, it, was, it sounded like it was mostly men today. But like, I'm definitely claiming Robin Kimbrell. I mean, I know it could go either way, but, but unless Robin lets me know otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, take that for a woman. And Mock Zenick. That sounds like a woman's moniker, right? Like a woman's superhero? Could be. And Taco 54. I mean, why do we assume that's a dude? Right? So maybe there are three women mixed in there. Maybe our, our supporter base is more diverse than I thought. Maybe I'm just hoping. But I got to tell you, it could all be men for all I care. And I would still be thrilled. There's nothing in my, there's really, there is nothing I do in, in terms of like what you would call work or productivity. There's nothing I do that I like more 
than being part of this podcast. And I'm just so grateful um, to everyone who makes it go. That starts with John Wright at the top, and it goes all the way to Taco 54. So thanks, and I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life.